Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that reminds you that it's within. Once more, I want you to allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to some of the greatest people on the planet so they can be your teacher. But this is a slightly different episode to normal because we're now at the last 16 stage of the World Cup. Now you have to remember 206 national teams did their best to qualify for Qatar. And that means that by the time we have a winner, 205 other teams are considered to be losers or considered not good enough or there's question marks over the players or the managers. But if there's, but if there's one thing that we've learned on this podcast over the past few years, it's that you need to park your opinions. Calling people losers, questioning people's integrity or their effort or their ability or their hard work or their determination is a waste of your time and a waste of your energy. Instead, we just say, have some empathy, build your understanding. Success, however we choose to define it, is often an ecosystem, a complex set of all sorts of different factors that weaken or strengthen the culture that eventually delivers high performance. There's rarely one single factor or one single person that can determine it. And whatever happens over the next few days as the competition comes to an end, we all know, of course, there'll be judgments, there'll be opinions, there'll be people saying all kinds of crazy things simply for the clicks, simply for the likes, simply for their own profile or because it fits what people expect of them. And it normally centres on looking for a scapegoat, right? Manager was no good. Players were pampered. Tactics were rigid. Lack of team spirit. And mentality's wrong. But we've been lucky enough on this podcast to speak with so many people who've actually been in the same place as those players and those managers who are right in the heart of it, who are actually in the thick of the action over the next few weeks. And they've offered us some fascinating insights. So what we thought we would do is that we would look back on five episodes over the course of High Performance that relate directly to what's happening right now out in Qatar. With me, as always, is Professor Damien Hughes. Damien, what would you like to add to that kind of short monologue at the top there? Well, I think what you've said, Jake, is perfect. I think the idea of empathy over opinion becomes ever more important at this moment in time, that there can only be one winner of the World Cup, but that doesn't mean that everybody else needs to be dismissed as a loser. I think success happens on everybody's own terms. And I think when we can understand the sheer pressures that people are operating under, the demands that are being placed on them, the weight of expectation, and we come at that from a place of empathy and understanding, I think we can start to appreciate just how lucky we are to be able to watch high performers operating uh, under pressure. So I think the episodes we've got give us some real great insights into what's going on in the minds and in the camps of uh, each of those teams that we're about to watch. Okay, well, let's start then with the England manager, Gareth Southgate, the man who told us that this podcast got him through lockdown. He joined us, he shared so much. This is uh, a small clip from our conversation with Gareth. Kevin had been a different type of leader, more emotional. Sven was very calm, and I think that helped people like Stephen Gerrard, David Beckham certainly in the initial stages with England, that a lot of the noise, the hullabaloo around England was calmer. We're just focusing on performance. It's not all about banging the drum and we, we're going to win and we're going to do this. So he created that environment and therefore, why is he going to be different at half time in a game? He was that, That's how he was and he worked in that way. Um, so I've got... You know what I know is I've got to be authentic to myself. Yeah. I think in being authentic to myself, I think there are different approaches you use at different times. You know there are rare occasions. I think it's rare because 
I don't think people respond to raised voices as much or aggressive challenge, but there are moments where that has to happen, I think, in a dressing room. To, you might need a, a response of energy or, and you've got to shake people out of the psychological state they're in. But you've done that for a reason. It's not that you've lost the plot at half time and you're going in with a purpose and you know what reaction you're trying to get. So I, th I think you've got to have different approaches yeah. with different players at different times and find out what they respond to and, and how can we get the best out of individuals. It's so interesting that, Damien, because that is really um, Gareth talking about the courage I guess the courage to be yourself regardless of the situation that comes your way. And, you know, this is a guy who's taken us to the semi-final of the last World Cup, the final of the Euros and only beaten on penalties. Yet still the criticism, still the accusation, still the doubts, still the question marks. And like, I, I'm really sort of proud of the fact that actually among all of that, Gareth does exactly as he's told us there. You know, since that conversation, he's gone on to make a final of the Euros and he's now at the World Cup. Nothing's changed. He still remains himself being true to his job doing it his way doing it with the way that he believes is the right way to manage England rather than kind of blowing with the wind being affected by the media have you known him to create a media storm in his time as the England manager and do something you know outlandish and ridiculous and un Gareth Southgate like and I think sometimes people get frustrated because they're like oh there's there's no reason to be angry but I need to try and find one the truth is there isn't a reason Gareth is doing an exceptional job as the England boss definitely I think when I've been lucky enough to go into sort of elite sports environments and those occasions where a leader has lost their job and you're crawling through the debris of that in the dressing room and you ask the players and the support staff, what was it that cost the previous guy his role? There's often two answers that come back. One is transparency, being really clear about what you stand for. And then the second one is consistency, applying those standards across the board. And I think Gareth's a textbook example of somebody that's really clear about the authentic leader he is. And then he is that authentic leader in every situation, whether he's in the finals of the European Championships or whether it's in um, a meeting with us that we had uh, up in Harrogate. I think he's entirely consistent. And I think I'd encourage people that on the back of this World Cup, do you remember when uh, we lost in 2006 and people then criticised Sven Goran Eriksson for sitting on the bench and not being particularly demonstrative with the players. But yet that was the, exactly the same qualities that people had lauded for him in the qualification rounds and the years before it. So I'd encourage people that let's view Gareth through those two lenses of is he transparent? Yes. And is he consistent? Yes. And view him as a leader through that lens rather than just whether we want him to be ranting and raving on a touchline and behaving in a way that's completely incongruent to him. And also I think that um I think in some sometimes we judge Gareth Southgate by out of date criteria or out of date opinions. You know, you can always you can always and people always will question a selection, question a tactic, question an approach. I think the key with him is he's not, he's not panicked. He's not rattled. There's no knee-jerk reactions. He never comes out and sort of criticises the players and then backtracks and apologises or does something like that. And there's no doubt about it, is there, that if you act like that, then it transmits to the players. If you're calm under pressure, 
the players will be calm under pressure. If you're able to carry the weight of the nation, then the players are able to carry the weight of the nation. If you know players are getting criticised and you stand alongside them, it helps them to cope with that criticism. And I think that it's clear he is so meticulous in his planning. And I think that it's more than just football for him though, isn't it? It's a bit like when we spoke with Eddie Howe and it was all about developing the human being. I think that for Gareth, he understands that he is managing a group of people, not a group of players. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that is worth, again, people remembering is that he told us that his most con- his most important selection in his squad is the third-choice goalkeeper because that's a guy that's unlikely to get out there on the field at any stage during the tournament, barring a disaster. But that's a guy that's going to be out there latest on the training field every day, saving penalties, doing the extra training with the strikers that weren't sharpening up. So Gareth's insight there tells you that he's interested in every player, not just the star names that are hopefully going to carry England to uh, the World Cup final and beyond. He's interested in every individual that's in that squad and seeing them as a person and not just what they can do for him. And I think that speaks volumes for him and the culture that is created in this England team. Yeah. And you know, what? I obviously I get to speak to quite a few of his players and you, you will struggle to find someone with a critical word for the way that he manages England. Um, who else should we should we hear from on this uh, special episode of High Performance, Damien? Who do you fancy next? Well, I think that when one of the great criticisms that often gets banded around whenever the England team sort of uh, fail in a tournament is that the players don't care enough. And I think that our conversation that we had with Gary Lineker was a great answer to that criticism when he spoke to us around his experiences in 1990 in particular. If you could go back to it one moment in time, what would it be and why? 1990, World Cup semi-final. Probably not the penalty shootout, but probably Chris Waddle's shot when it goes across the goal, hits the inside of the post. See, now I know which way it will come out. So I would have moved myself a couple of yards to the side and knocked it in and win from 2-1. And that's the only football match in my whole career where I look back and think, if only. I know there's the Brazil penalty thing, but that, you know, that's just a personal goal. But being that close to a World Cup final, you know, to lose on a penalty shootout or to be a whisker of the wrong side of the post when it hit Chris Waddle's ball came back out. And I honestly believe we'd have won the final. Obviously, I don't know that, but... You know, they weren't the same Argentinian side that we'd played four years previously. And that would have meant we were 90 minutes away from football immortality. And that's the only thing. And Bobby Robson was exactly the same. I had the conversation with him. It was the only thing that he ever used to blank. Every now, not every day. I don't think about it all the time. <laughs> Honest. So the next time someone says that footballers don't care, let's remind them that 32 years on, from that moment it still hurts for Gary and it's one of the things that people love to throw the way of any elite athlete when things aren't going the way oh do they care enough have they got the fire have they got the desire I wonder what that's all about Damien I think it, what we're often looking for is oh it's like an easy trope an easy answer for it and I think it's that that's something that when you see these players sort of coming off the field, they may be masking their emotions. The intense disappointment is something they might only share with those people within their inner circle. So you might see them coming off the field looking mildly frustrated. And 
because we don't see our own emotions necessarily mirrored back in them. We assume that that uh, that they don't care enough. This was a big lesson, Jake, that I learned years ago when um, I was working in rugby league at the time and coming back on a team coach after a particularly galling defeat. The head coach was uh, really measured in the advice that he gave me because players were sat on the back of the bus laughing and joking and yet those of us in the support staff were devastated at the front and we were sort of like aggrieved that they didn't seem to care as much as we did and it was my friend Tony Smith, a head coach at the time, that said to me, they do, they're just masking it. Their grief will come out in a different way. So I'd encourage people not to necessarily measure how people feel by their external reactions. And I'd certainly say that anybody that's here in the World Cup cares deeply about it, whether you can see it or not. I think you only have to look at the evidence in front of you, right? Not only are they professionals that do this for a living, but also almost every single player from probably the age of six has dedicated their lives. Their family have dedicated their lives. We've spoken to so many people whose mums and dads have driven them around every single weekend to get them to training, to get them to that moment. And they will have so much riding on this personally. I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you're, and you're out with your mates and they go, oh, that player doesn't care. I think just say to them, what makes you think, why? Why would that player yeah. not care about being as brilliant as he can be or she can be? But I think you're absolutely right. You know, they don't. It's not easy to show how you truly feel when you're on the world stage, and you know there's thousands of people watching, and then millions more watching at home. You know, you almost, you almost feel. I think that you have to put on a bit of a front at times, don't you? Yeah, I, re- I remember years ago hearing Martin Johnson, the legendary England rugby union captain, talking about this. That when the England players were threatening to go on strike, he remembers somebody coming up to him and lambasting him in a in a bar somewhere and saying to them, I'd crawled over broken glass to play for England. And Martin Johnson said to him, I have crawled over broken glass to play for England. You just say you would. And the point he's making is that exactly your point that if anybody's here at this stage of a sharp end of a tournament, they've gone the extra mile several times. Their passion can't be questioned their desire to get there isn't something that's up for debate whether you can see that or not and again i'd really encourage it if we have empathy rather than opinion i think we'll start to appreciate the latter end of this tournament so much more right let's hear from someone else here's glenn hoddle talking about tactics in the late 90s i had some great players to work with we were going places believe me we were playing some beautiful football, great football, playing three at the back, a bit different to what, you know, the norm was at the time. Looking back now, would you say 38 and, and, and the situation for the England job off the pitch, dealing with the press, dealing with the media, dealing blah, blah, blah? Probably, yeah. I'd deal with that much easier now without a shadow of a doubt. But was I too young to take that job at 38? If I'd have come out with a... Well, didn't qualify for the World Cup. Come out with a, I don't know, 25% win percentage, whatever it may be. And I think, yeah, actually, Glenn, you were too young. But I don't think I was, if I'm honest. And I think a lot of the, the way we were playing, the way we were going on, I think it, that's the frustration of the job, losing the job when I lost the job. It was, um, it was where we could have took it, where we could have took it. And the exciting thing for me was always about Rio, funny enough. Rio Ferdinand... Rio Ferdinand was a wonderful, wonderful centre-back. He was a Rolls-Royce of a centre-back. But, believe me, he never had the opportunity to play in a back three. 
and I'd have had him playing in a back three, which would have took him to another level and would have took England to another level because he would have been coming out a bit like the Germans play their sweeper. I'd have had him coming out on the ball, even off the ball, because I knew he could cope going into midfield, making a spare man. And then we would do, so there was, there was that's just one example where I felt we were going with a, a crop of experienced players and the crop of young, exciting players as, as Rio, Michael Owen, David Beckham and, and Paul Scholes. As long as also still having your Shearers and your Adams and your Inces and your Sherinhams, the experience was still there. And you know what? Any manager worth his salt would always say that's the template, that's the formula, the balance that you want. Experience with talent, young talent. Look, Damien, we know the reasons behind Glenn leaving the England job when he did. And, you know, on that podcast, if people are willing to listen to it, you know, we discuss it. And uh, he shares his reflections of that, you know, many years later. He was only 38, right, when he got the England job. I think it's just worth talking about this just briefly because there is something for people listening to this podcast to learn from being able to let stuff go. Like here we are all these years later and Glenn still feels like he could have done something amazing as the England manager. And the players that I work with now who played under him all believe exactly the same thing. What is the skill for us to not let ourselves get twisted up with things we can't control like the situation that Glenn is in? It's come, it's gone. An opportunity for him has been missed. How do we move on? I'd, I'd, I'd go back to our mantra of what high performance is, doing the best you can where you are in the moment you're in. So I think once you can answer that question honestly, have I done the best I can? If the answer is yes, with the knowledge I had at that moment in time in that moment, I think then you have to be able to take the learnings from it and be able to then say, what would I do next time if that situation would occur? Or what can I take away from that that I can pass on to the next generation or that I can apply to different areas of my life? I think there's often two things that so many of our guests have spoken about. And one of them is the danger of regret going over the of, of what could have been or how futile it is and how it can churn them up. And I think that once you can do that analysis, do that, unsparing self-reflection you have to be able to then park the stuff that you can't change and take the stuff forward the, uh, that you can and I think in Glenn's case there I think what that also offers us Jake is another answer to the criticism that that will inevitably come to one of the teams that don't win this tournament is the, the criticism of their tactics and I think it's a great example of the idea that these people that we're criticising have studied, have immersed themselves in the nuances of their discipline for decades to be able to have that flexibility. And again, I think it's a lazy kernel we need to be careful of, of suggesting that these people are not flexible enough or they don't understand the nuances of football enough. Glenn is a great example of a guy that was thinking so far forward that I think it would be ridiculous to suggest that he's somebody that didn't understand the nature of it. I think a really interesting thought as well is that if you're going to live a life, an exciting, interesting, fulfilling life, you are going to have these moments. They might not be, oh, I could have done it as the England manager and I'm disappointed that I've missed the opportunity. But all of us will live with a sense of regret, a sense of disappointment, a sense of what if. So I think it informs us on two levels. The first one is you need to almost expect that's going to happen at some point, right? If you can expect it, I think it makes it easier to accept it because there's no point rallying against what could have been. I think that's the first thing. 
I think the second thing is it should inform the decisions that we make. It should inform, you know, as we were told recently on a podcast episode that hasn't yet been released, live like you're going to die tomorrow, learn like you're going to live forever. You know, you've got to grasp these opportunities. You've got to give it your everything. You've got to just see, just see what might happen if you gave it your all. You still might think, oh, what a missed opportunity. But it won't be as much. Because what you don't want to do is sort of end your days with all of these thoughts in your head of why didn't I do that stuff I really wanted to do? Why didn't I take the opportunity? You know, I heard a great quote once. It was Denzel Washington. He was talking to students at a university in America. And he said, what you don't want to do is get to the end of your days. And at the end of your bed is littered with ghosts of missed opportunity. And the ghosts are saying, why didn't you take this chance on me? I believed in you. Why didn't you grab hold of my opportunity? You had everything you needed to do it. And I think that idea of ghosts of missed opportunities is not something that we all want to be haunted by, right, when we get to the end of our lives. And so I think accept and expect that you're going to be disappointed in life, but take all those opportunities that come your way. Right, who should we hear from next? Well, again, if we think of some of the classic uh, conversations that often follow a World Cup, we talk about team spirit. Team spirit let the team down or the the unity of what was going on in the backroom staff. So I think a great example of that would be Dr Pippa Grange, somebody that was brought into the uh, FA after the debacle in 2016 when we got beat to Iceland. And in the 744 days that followed her joining the FA, we found ourselves in the World Cup semi-finals against Croatia in 2018. So Dr Pippa was great at talking to us around the work she does in establishing a culture that's harmonious, that creates a sense of belonging, and that's rife with psychological safety. I think she's a great example of somebody that can tell us more around that. Um, you know, and in terms of performance, whether we're talking about that in an office setting or in a, a team setting, all that does is lower people's willingness to take a risk. And what does it, what does extreme elite performance require? Risk. You have to be vulnerable enough to put yourself out there. And every time there is a culture of conformity, for me, it's impoverishing. It, it really strips away people's ability to take that risk, to stand up. You know, you would have read in the book, the Richmond Tigers, AFL, go Tigers, their, um, you know, their Triple H exercise, which actually came from Atlanta Falcons, NFL, which was like stand, being able to stand up and say, to tell a story of a hero hardship and highlight in their own life. And, you know, for all these, these guys had endured and tolerated and the whole world looks at them as brave, doing that where it was personally vulnerable was probably the biggest breakthrough piece that they could have that allowed them to go into a different zone where they dropped fear, you know, and they raised intimacy. Oh, you know what, Damien, I love being reminded about that, actually. And I think... I love the conversation about risk when it comes to performing at an elite level. You know, I was reminded of um, a young player at Norwich called Aaron Ramsey. He's on loan from Aston Villa. He came round to collect um, a copy of High Performance to take with him on his trip to Miami with his partner. And he was talking about the, you know, like the initiation song that footballers sing when they turn up at a new football oh, yeah. club. And I said, how was it? And he said, oh man, he said, I was absolutely awful. Kind of like a bit coy and a bit shy. And he said he wasn't very good. Um, but I think the point is, it doesn't matter whether he was good or bad. It was the fact that he was willing to turn up at a new club. He's a teenager. He's like 19 years old and sort of expose himself in that sense. And I think some people look at these kinds of things on the outside and think, what is, what is that all about? But it's that, it is that risk taking that allows the relationship to grow 
between players in these elite teams. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing for us to consider when it comes to listeners trying to build their own teams. And as we both know, you've got to be vulnerable and you've got to be vulnerable from the very top of an organisation. Yeah, definitely. And if anyone's listening to this, I think the idea of the three H's, the hero, hardship and highlight, is a really good way of framing conversations, of asking people to stand up and tell their story. We heard on the podcast recently Eddie Howe talking about the power of getting his Newcastle team to do that because what that does is it starts to help people understand what do we have in common it doesn't matter if you're from Brazil or whether you're from Tyneside, the idea that you might be caring for uh, elderly parents or you might be responsible for younger siblings was a really powerful way of creating that connection. The one thing I would say, Jake, is that when I've been required to do team songs on a bus like Aaron Ramsey's describing, <laughs> I, I'll have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have, and I'll tell you my go-to, which is always Yellow Submarine, because... John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote that for Ringo Starr because he couldn't sing. and I, So that's one where everybody will join in within seconds as well and save you the embarrassment of having to listen to your voice. So that's a little tip that I've learned. Off you go. <laughs> I'll, sp- I'll spare the listeners. We've not put an explicit warning sign on the, on the top of this podcast. We'll, put, we'll probably also get a bill for about £100,000 for singing a Beatles song without permission on the podcast. But I'm sure we can all imagine your dulcet tones You'd love it. That. You'd love it. Um, shall we finish with a player who is representing England um, at this tournament? Yeah, I think this would be great because there's a really good chance that over the next few weeks we're going to be uh, watching England stepping up to maybe take penalties. And I think that we've had this history for years that we're not good as a nation at taking penalties. And yet the guy that broke that hoodoo, if we can call it that, was Eric Dyer that we were lucky enough to speak to on the podcast. We asked Eric specifically about the winning penalty that he took against Colombia in 2018. Do you think about the country, the people watching, the history with penalties, the fact that it's all on you? that everyone's holding their breath, <laughs> that this goal puts us into the next round. Like, what? Can you take us through the, the yeah. mental story when you knew you were taking that kick? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because Portugal knocked England out of penalties twice, you know, and I used to get <laughs> so much um, stick about it, about it, you know, at the academy. And, um, but I felt, I felt, uh, Portuguese in that way you know where like I felt like I have the Portuguese thing about taking penalties you know like I grew up about it I grew up with it at, at yeah. sporting you know as in the confidence thing like, the confidence yeah. thing yeah like I feel like I had their confidence to, like their confidence to take a penalty right. or, or do one of those things you know because I, I was uh, I was one of them in, in that scenario where we you know we'd practice penalties loads and, and all that kind of stuff and I was around them doing it so so there was that kind of aspect to it. And then I didn't really feel attached to like the, the I didn't feel attached to, to England's penalty like disasters, you know, um, well, not disasters, but penalty losses in the past. Yeah. As a fan, I did. Oh, like, they I was, were disasters. Don't I worry was, about that. <laughs> I was devastated. I was like, as a kid, I was devastated, you know, when England lost on penalties and it was actually a bad penalty, but I was really calm in that moment. I think what I take away from that is the importance of of not carrying 
that baggage into those big moments in these tournaments. And actually, I'm kind of, um, I'm buoyed by the fact that the young players playing for England at the moment, what do they know? They know a semi-final of a World Cup. They know a final of a Euros, only being defeated on penalties. They don't carry these issues that maybe the players 10, 15, 20, 25 years carried, do they? No, you know, and again, I think that's an awful lot of credit to... Gareth Southgate spoke about how heavy the shirt was when he'd played and equally when he inherited it, that players would often feel that they were carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. They'd freeze under pressure or they'd somehow underperform against their capabilities. And I think one of the things that when we get to the sharp end of a tournament like this, and I know we all have an emotional investment in our own team doing as well as we can, but I love that we can appreciate any team's high performers you know the guys that are operating under pressure guys that have invested years in learning their craft people in the backroom staff that have spent decades learning how to hone and create team spirit that bears up under immense pressure leaders that are able to adapt in the moment and role model the behaviors they want i think there's so many high performance lessons that we can learn and we can appreciate over the next couple of weeks and i hope that these brief reflections and some of the interviews that we've done give people that awareness that they can enjoy the world cup regardless of the results of their own team Absolutely agree with that. And, you know, don't forget, we've got loads of other conversations from footballers and football managers. You can hear Steve Clark on these podcasts, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, uh, Anthony Taylor, who's refereeing at the World Cup, of course, Maurizio Pochettino. There are really interesting football conversations everywhere you look. But if you've heard these small snippets and you want more, I can just tell you quickly that the Gareth Southgate episode is episode number 60. If you want to hear more from Gary Lineker, he was episode 126. Glenn Hoddle was episode 121 of the podcast. Pippa Grange was episode 103. And Eric Dyer was episode 97. I'll tell you what, we'll also pop those just in the description for this episode because we've given you just a small taste of what our guests had to offer, but they have so much to share, so much to talk about and so much for you to learn from. Um, thanks a lot, Damien. Let's hope that the uh, the next couple of weeks is great from an England perspective and good from a football point of view as well. Yeah, so being parochial, yeah, of course we want England to do well, but from a high-performance point of view, I think let's just enjoy seeing elite performers operating at the sharp end. As always, big thanks to you at home for growing and sharing this podcast among your friends and your family, your community, your colleagues. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Remember, there is no secret. It's all there for you, so chase world-class basics, and we'll see you very soon. Mm